Go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to speak to your people, even if your people aren't physically present. I thank you for the opportunity that you have given us because of the death of your son and the resurrection of your son on the three days later. I thank you, Lord, that you will be glorified and magnified today. You will be known through this sermon that your word will come forth and that those that need to hear it will hear it and we will grow from it and we'll be strengthened in you. I thank you, Lord, for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This sermon is actually about persecution. And the title of it is, He is Perfecting Persecution. The devil, since the beginning of time, has been persecuting Christians or men of God, men and women of God. And as long as there are Christians willing to spread the gospel, there will be a devil trying to persecute us for doing it. Let's, uh, let's turn to Ephesians 6.11. It says, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In wiles, the definition of wiles is devious or cunning strategies employed to manipulate someone to do what one wants. So the whole goal of the devil is to get as many people into sin as he can. It is not necessarily to um, make you uncomfortable. But if that'll get you into sin, that's what he'll do. It's not necessarily to make you poor, make you unhealthy, or make you rich so you'll forget about that. It doesn't matter what it is. He wants whatever is going to work for you. That's what he wants to do. You can be persecuted by your riches. You can be persecuted by your health just as much as you can be persecuted for... or being poor, and being unhealthy. So if his goal is to get as many people into sin as possible, he most likely will not accomplish that with brute force. Now even one of the first attempts in, uh, with Cain and Abel, it ended in brute force with the death of Abel. But it started off with subtlety. He convinced Abel, or Cain, like I said last time I preached, that the only way he would get what he wanted was to get rid of Abel. So, he started, or he persecuted Abel through separation. He had to cause a separation there between brothers for that to take place. The devil's goal is always separation. If if you turn to 1 Peter 5.8, It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So why is he called a lion? Yes, a lion will devour its prey. But a lion also uses a certain tactic. If you ever see a, a, a nature thing about a, a lion hunting, 
wildebeest. They show up, roaring, causing some kind of panic. Once they get the herd into a panic, they go after the ones in the back, the weaker ones or the ones that happen to, to separate far enough away from the pack that they can take them down. And the reason why they do this is because if they attacked from the front, they would be trampled by the pack. The devil cannot take down a true church of God or a true man or woman of God head on. It says he, he disguises himself as an angel of light. Let's go ahead and turn to Genesis 37. I'm sure most everyone listening or seeing this has knows the story. But let's look at the tactic used here. There are 12 brothers, and if you read there in verse 3, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. When his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So the devil used love to separate Brothers, he used love as inspiration for hate. He used love as the catalyst to the start of Joseph's persecution. Joseph was a slave for 13 years, some of the time in Potiphar's house, some of the time in prison. And even though it ended up being the salvation of Israel to go there, it was definitely a persecution for that time. Every time that he would get something, it'd get ripped away from him. He was being persecuted by the devil. And the devil had managed to move, from what I can read from the scripture, the devil had managed to remove the only biblical base, the only godly child in the group. doesn't really mention um, Benjamin too much about uh, what his beliefs were or how he handled himself besides that. He became the next favorite son, but it mentions Joseph getting dreams from God, and and he was the sign of hope. He was God's light in their family, besides their father. So the devil managed to get ten sons at least to tear away from their family and remove and persecute their brother. And the devil uses this tactic every single day. And there's a reason why I'm going through, I'm, I know this is just, that's a story everybody's heard. Everybody's heard the devil seeks to go, uh, going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But the devil uses these tactics, and if we don't see them coming, we're less likely to fight against them. And there's a different answer, a different defensive or offensive move to different attacks. If there was only one attack, it would say we would put on a piece of the armor of God and we wouldn't have to worry about the rest. We could just set the shield up in the direction that the the darts are coming and live our lives. But that's not the case. And if you're anything like me, my answer to almost everything when it comes to, to this uh, put on the whole armor of God, my answer is, oh, well, you know, we need to pray and stand firm and and we'll see how it works out or we'll pray that it works out well. And I've always used that as a piece of my armor. And I've always 
thought of it as a piece of armor that I wear. And this would be a lot easier if there was people here to answer this, but you can answer where you are. What part of the armor is standing and praying? Let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6 and go over that instead. Well, Ephesians 6 and 13. It says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your learns girt about with the truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the peace of gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the devil, of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying and standing fast is not a piece of the armor at all. It's actions you take once you are completely armed. Um, The reason why I mention this is the armor... My armor is not for the church, necessarily. Your armor is not for the church. Your armor, I cannot benefit from in most cases, and I can't, you can't benefit from mine. It's a singular piece, and I know I've just said that separation is the devil's goal, but my armor is fitted to me. My armor, my shield isn't going to quench the darts the devil's shooting at you. Now, there are going to be times, granted, where there are darts that would have hit you that are going to glance off my shield when we're fighting together, and vice versa. But the devil will get us alone. Even Jesus had to face the devil alone. Not spiritually alone, but he was completely physically alone, and the devil attacked him with everything he had. And if Jesus had counted on someone else's armor, he would have been unarmed and unprotected. So let's read there in, in 18, right, at, right after 17. It says, uh, Praying always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with perseverance and supplication for all saints. See, what you do in your armor is what benefits the church. That's where all saints come in. Every single time, it mentions stand over and over again, I think because every single time you put on a piece of armor, there's going to be a little bit more weight. A little heavier, but you've got to stand. And then the prayer is the action, is the tactic that you are taking once you are armed. And I don't know about you, I'm sure it's the same, but when persecution starts, I want someone fully clothed and armed to come fight alongside me and fight to help me. So, a little side note there that I think is important that... We look at how we defend against these as well. So let's go back. In our daily lives, how do we see the devil causing separation? Anybody who's been through a church split has seen it. Um, Starts off young. My kids, if one of them, well, if the girl, the boy could care less. He's a mama's boy. But if the girl sees me giving the boy attention... And if I get overly, overly enthusiastic about my intention, attention to him and she sees the joy that I am 
putting upon him and the joy he's receiving from it, she'll drop whatever she's got. Doesn't matter if it's her favorite toy, doesn't matter if it is her favorite meal, what she's doing, she'll drop it, she wants to come over and she'll say, my turn. She wants me to put him down and do the same thing for her. Now they love playing together, but she wants to know that I love her more. And she wants to separate me from him to prove it. In in society today, if you go and witness to someone, they're going to say, you think God loves you more than he loves me just because I don't believe the way you believe? Or you think you're better off because, or you're better because God chose me or chose you over me? I don't think I'm better than you, but I'm definitely better off. If I was better than you, then God wouldn't have needed to choose me if it was, it was about me or, or how good I am. And they're outraged at us not because we're going around saying and believing that we are loved more than God, or more, loved by God more than, than they are. They're outraged because they know it. They know that wrath is towards them from God and love towards us. And they want that. And in church, church is big enough to have cliques. There's cliques in church where this person will talk to that person more and it causes envy. And people are like, well, you know, if I'm going to feel this way at church, then I'll just leave. And then you're separated from the body of Christ. You are now that lone wildebeest that's out without protection. You are now an easy target where health issues, work issues, family issues, depression issues, whatever it is, the devil can attack you with it. And you don't have the body of Christ with you. that you, Someone you can go to and lean on and fight with you to fight this off. And people who go through this and end up losing that battle are some of the worst people to witness to. Some of the worst people to be around. Yeah, I used to be a Christian. I went to church. And I just I couldn't stand it. I hate Christians now. I hate church. So now not only is that person not a Christian, and they're not being persecuted anymore, they are the persecutor. The devil has managed through separation to remove a piece of the body of Christ and make it cancerous. Because his goal, like I said, is not for one person to fall away. His goal is to get that one person to drag as many people with him. And one of the most terrifying things that I, as a father and, and as a husband, saw, I saw, used to watch to these people on YouTube because they were really clean. One of the only people you could sit there and watch and, and not worry that someone was going to walk in and they were going to say something or do something. And they were Christians. And then all of a sudden, I had to stop listening to them and watching them because they slowly but surely just went away from, from being clean. And it was started off occasional, and then it got almost every single time. And then a few months ago, they released a video saying what had happened. They said that they, got, they moved somewhere, and they got to where they started doubting Genesis, basically. They doubted the beginning. They, did it. they doubted whether or not God had created the earth. And through that, it created doubt in all of their, um, their life, all of their spiritual life. 
And the statement the guy made to me was, I just had all this doubt and it was hurting my wife and my kids. And he said, I was in this boat. And he said, I didn't just jump into the water and start swimming in the doubt. I grabbed a hold of all of my family and drug them in with me. He basically, well, not basically, he literally said, I took all of my family from the faith and I'm dragging them to hell with me. And that was just over doubt. He had, he had, the devil had managed through, managed through separation. This guy, had his career started taking off, so he moved from North Carolina to California, which is not a, a hotbed of, of, of religion. Well, it is, but not of Christianity. And through that separation, he took his whole family down with him. And then his partner that they did do the thing with, he took his family down with him. They both made sure because they doubted so much that they drugged their family away from the faith. Separation, if you feel that separation coming on, there is an answer. Um, if we turn to uh, James 4.8. It says, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. And this is something that everybody should be really good at by now. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So, once again, it doesn't say make sure that your brothers and sisters are going to treat you right so, that so you're not separated. It says you fix your household, you suit up correctly. And then things will work out. God's going to draw close to you the closer you draw to Him. So, to clarify, go ahead and turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 6. Second Corinthians 6, 17. It says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So, the, God does call for separation, but not from each other. Bible, uh, or in, when Jesus was ascending, he said, Father, my prayer is that they will be one, as you and I are one. So separation from the world, absolutely. But we are to be one with each other. Just as close as God and His Son. So we must fight. We must fight to draw near to God. I think the saying is, you know, you run after God as fast as possible and you look over to the right and see who's running with you. You don't run after your brothers and sisters where they're going. If they're going the wrong place, that's just not going to work. I'm not talking about not witnessing or going out to get people. I'm talking about your actual journey. You need to be running with people. Well, let's go ahead. Talked about the devil changing tactics. Turn to Numbers 20. He changes how he goes after people. 
and he changes who he goes after. He is wily, like the Bible says. He is cunning. This is, uh, start there in, in one. It's in the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, uh, the children of Israel came, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, God, Would God that we had died with our brothers before the Lord? And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into, his, into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die? And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt, to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or figs or pomegranates. There is no water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went up to the present, uh, from the presence of the assembly under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. Now, at first glance, it looks like the entire congregation of Israel is being persecuted. And sounds like it's supposed to have been the worst persecution that they had ever seen, which is not true. But the devil had them convinced of it. There was nothing that they were going through that was worse than what they were going through in Israel, or in, uh, in Egypt. So, this persecution is not on the children of Israel. This persecution is against Moses and Aaron. So, let's see. Where were we? Five. Yeah. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of this rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beast to drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and said unto them, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock. And Moses lifted up his rod and smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. So at first glance, the devil probably thought that he had failed, because the first thing that they did was go before the, the tabernacle. And I don't really know if it means anything. I'm pretty sure it does, but... They didn't say anything. Every time that I, can, that, I, that I could find, when something would happen, Moses and Aaron would do something, would say something, would pray to God, do something to dissuade the wrath of God. But this time here, they just fell on their face. Maybe they were, maybe they were done. Maybe they were done hearing what the congregation was saying against them. See, the children of Israel had given up every single time. They prayed for salvation from slavery. Moses came. They took, he took away, uh, Egypt took, or uh, 
Pharaoh took away the straw, and they said, okay, we give up. Just, we'll stay slaves. And they get freed. They get to the Red Sea. The army comes up behind them. Okay, we give up. We'll go, we'll go back to being slaves. They had waited 400 years to be freed from slavery, and they couldn't wait another 40 days for Moses to get back with word from God. And every single time, the devil would get bits and pieces. A few thousand here, a few thousand there, but there were millions of Israelites. And he wanted all of them. So he goes after Moses and Aaron personally, completely out of character for the people of Israel. When they came to them and they said, we're the people of God, we're, we're claim God. It's you we have an issue with. We are God's people. We're the congregation of Israel. Why would you bring the congregation of Israel into a place like this? Why would, why would you bring us to a place? Don't you realize that, that this many people, millions of people, need water to drink? We need, you know, our beasts need water to drink. We need to have something to, to feed our animals. We can't plant anything. It won't grow here. Moses and Aaron, how, how, how dumb are you? Why would you bring us here? It was all personal. And I would assume, like I said, they fell on their faces and they didn't say anything. And God came to them and I would assume they were expecting God to come out and start whooping people again. Come out and they were going to have to stand up and do something to keep God from destroying the people of Israel. But instead... God says, go show them where I put the water. And after that many personal attacks, you can gather from, from what they said there, I would assume that uh, Moses was probably heading over to that rock with that rod in his hand, a little hot under the collar. Walking up, man, I gave up being a king in Egypt to rule these stiff-necked people. I have to give up my entire day. I have no time to spend with family or just enjoy myself because they can't judge between one another. I have to judge between everything. All this, and now, if you read halfway there between um, verse 10, it says, here now, you rebels, do we have to get you water too? And he stroke, struck the rock, showing that it was his action that brought forth water, and God got no glory for it. In verse 12 there, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. So he has managed, the devil has managed to separate a leader from their people. Maybe not the instant punishment that he wanted. He probably wanted God to just wipe them all out. The devil learned here, I'm sure several times through, but the best way to go after the people of God is to go after the leader. Quite possibly, the fact that Moses wasn't going into the promised land with them 
was just enough of that little seed of doubt that those ten spies needed when they came back to not have faith that they could take the land because the leader that they had known wasn't going to be with them. Three million people, roughly, adults. All adults that left Egypt, except for two families, died because of doubt, because of of separation. And through the whole Bible, the devil tries to cause separation between leaders and their people. Some good leaders, some bad leaders. Imagine how different the life of David would have been if he hadn't said, I dare not raise my hand up against the Lord's anointed. Saul was a bad leader. He was prophesied to be a bad leader, and he was a bad leader. If he had, he could have done that and probably taken part of the kingdom sooner than he had. But there would have probably been a split in his kingdom forever. Because that's how every other nation did it. If you had the power, you took the kingdom until someone else had the power to take the kingdom from you. But what he said is what Moses should have said. I'm not in charge. God is. Why are you bringing this to me? And he says, yes, God did bring me to this point with a knife in my hand over the body of my enemy, my king, because if he had brought someone else, they probably would have killed him. Moses, or David was there for a purpose, to show how important it is not raise your hand up against the leaders of your people, good or bad. Because they are there for a reason. They are the Lord's anointed. And as the leader goes, so goes the people in most cases. Over and over, uh, through judges and, well, throughout the whole Bible. But judges is, is just a roller coaster. of They have a leader. Things go well until that leader falls away or dies and then they fall away. Then they call for God. God gives them another leader. Whenever they are separated from a godly leader, they are separated from God. didn't have to be that way, but sheep need a shepherd. We need a leader. So if you see personal attacks coming after you, which is usually where it goes, if you see personal attacks coming after your, your pastor you can pretty much guarantee he's trying to separate you from your leader. If someone comes after or with a personal attack after your pastor and says, oh, well, show me biblically, biblically where he's wrong, and then we can go from there. In Myanmar, a few years ago, I was listening to a thing about the persecuted church. They took 95 pastors and imprisoned them for being pastors. And they said, all right, everybody who recants their faith, is free to go. Two pastors got up and walked out. They released them. Didn't say how long, but it didn't appear to be that much longer afterwards. They said, all right, everybody's now free to go. You just can't preach. Don't meet with your flock, and you can be a Christian. They didn't care that they were 
Christians. The devil at that point knew, okay, I'm not getting these 93 pastors. But maybe I can keep them from spreading this kind of devotion to other people. Separating, a separation of that type is still taking place. I mean, today, there's, there's no one here. You guys can still hear, <clears throat> hear the word. There's places to go. But that's why being a pastor is terrifying. Because if you are a pastor, the devil's main goal, the best case scenario is not that you just stop being a pastor. He doesn't want to take you out. He wants you to be a bad example. He wants you to lead your flock either by example or by perverting the word away from Christ. If he has to destroy you to do it, that's fine. But his goal is the flock. He would, just like the Bible says God will, will leave the 99 to bring the one back, well, the devil will forget about the one to destroy the 99. So our part in this is helping our leaders, not being a thorn in their side, not being that last straw, that last personal attack that turns you, turns the leader against the people. That last straw, that last cut down that Moses got that he just had enough. Let's turn to, uh, to Hebrews 13, 17. Actually, Hebrews 13, 7. It says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith following, considering the end of their conversation. And now read 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch over your souls as they, must, as, that, as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for it is unprofitable for you. So if the devil's going after your leaders, you need to be standing with them. Because doing otherwise isn't just unprofitable for them, it's unprofitable for you. If the devil can separate you from your leader, then it is just as bad or worse than separating you from the flock. Because the whole flock is going the wrong direction if there is no leader. And how are we supposed to know if our leader is being attacked? Because we should be with him and see the attack coming. If you take the visual of a pastor standing up on a pulpit looking down at the people, he can see anything that's coming after them. He can see every attack that's coming from their back, but he can't see what's coming from behind him. Everyone out here can see what's behind me. I would have no idea if there's danger behind me. It's our job to watch his back just as much as it is his to watch ours. So, in Rome, when, or when they finally, when they killed Jesus, the persecution that came from, or came after the Christians was from the church. 
initially. Rome could care less at that point in time. They just thought that Christianity was another sect of Judaism. It wasn't a threat to them. Romans didn't care if the Jewish people sacrificed to God. The Roman people would go in and take over a society and just integrate. That's how they kept the peace. They just added gods as they went. Well, the leaders of the church persecuted the body of Christ, the leaders of the tabernacle. <clears throat> Excuse me. But this is where the tactic of, shouldn't we all just get along, came into play. You see the, the coexist signs on, or uh, bumper stickers on people's car, and it has every satanic pagan symbol, and then they have the, the Star of David in the middle. And that's how the Roman people wanted it. That's what they wanted. Let's just, all of our gods can just play together. Because they had a, had a god for everything. And they did, well, we'll add another one. But the leaders of that church, the leaders of the tabernacle who had already fallen away, were persecuting the body of Christ for believing differently. And that will still happen today. You get into a church and you start believing something or getting light in this, of, on something that the church doesn't have, and you try to, to step out in that, you can be removed and ridiculed. And it makes people not want to grow. It separates them from the Word of God because the Word of God would cause growth. So they, you know, people show up on Sunday, they sit in the same spot and for 30 years, 40 years, whatever, and then they, you know, that's, that's the old routine. That's the routine that you just find a groove and you stick with it. And you can be removed not for heresy, just for... That's just not our uh, our way of doing it. It's not our tradition. And that's what the Jewish people were doing. They were, the Christians were removing their traditions. They were removing their power because now the Christians can come, Christians could come straight to God. It wasn't until, I, I, I think his name is Tortullian. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. He was a, a writer during that time started talking about how the growth of Christianity was just exploding in Rome. And he made the statement something along the lines of, I can number your armies at a distance, but we outnumber you in one province. And, and they were growing rapidly. And Rome made Christianity illegal. Every province was allowed to do it differently. Some places were allowed to have home churches. Some places could have a church. Some places could be a a Christian as long as you didn't speak about it publicly. But the devil was using, started using being patriotic. And this is what we see a lot of today, being patriotic as a way to get Christians and non-Christians alike to hate Christians. Because the Romans, when they would sacrifice they would sacrifice to a god and say, okay, this is so that our army will succeed. This sacrifice is so that our country will, or our empire will, will grow and be strengthened. This sacrifice is to the genius of Caesar, which is the divinity of Caesar. So if you didn't sacrifice, you didn't want your country to survive. That's unpatriotic. Throughout history, and even in the Bible, most of the time when the... Christians are being persecuted. They're not being persecuted for being a Christian. At least that's not their accusations. We're going to turn to Matthew 27. This is the accusation they gave to 
or gave against um, Jesus. Twenty-seven, eleven. It says, and Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, "Art thou the King of the Jews?" And he said, "Thou say." And Jesus said unto him, "Thou sayest it." So he wasn't accusing him of being a really nice person and being a godly man. He just said, "Are you trying to start your own empire?" He was accused of insurrection. In Acts uh, sixteen twenty-one, it says that. Uh, they were brought for him. They said, they, they're teaching us customs that we're not allowed to observe, gods that we're not allowed to worship. Because that god doesn't allow you to worship other gods. They were being accused of breaking laws, of insurrection, of treason. Because if you didn't want your army to win, that means you wanted the other army to win. So that's treason. If you stood out there today and said, I hope that the Marines fail. Or you just say, I don't hope they don't succeed. Or if you didn't say anything and everybody else was saying that they hope they succeed, then you are the one being separated. They're going to separate you from society, which we are already separate as a body, but they managed to separate the humanity of someone from society. Well, they, they just, they're not, they're not part of us. The reason why um, it's so important to separate our humanity from society as the devil is like the, the going back to that sacrificing. Very similar thing to what will happen in the end times. If you sacrificed or to, to do business, to buy, sell food, to work, you had to get a certificate called the Libelus. It was a certificate saying that you sacrificed to the genius of Caesar, which is the divinity of Caesar. So, if you didn't have that, you didn't support your nation. That was the, their, their persecution there. And people think, well, that really couldn't happen here. But it has to happen here. Otherwise, the Bible's not true. It has to happen everywhere. And the devil doesn't want us to realize that it's happening today because... We'd fight back. And the devil can't win. Like I said in the beginning, he can't win with head on tack because he'll just get trampled. We'll see it coming. In North Korea, you can be fined a year's wages, have your business taken away, and be publicly ridiculed if you don't espouse homosexual beliefs. Actually, that was in Oregon two years ago. And the president of Cambodia says that if you don't worship in an approved way, your church can be permanently closed and your right to assemble will be permanently removed. That was actually in New York two weeks ago. So any churches that they find meeting in any way, they are going to take into account possibly not allowing them to ever have a church again. In Greenville, Mississippi, they're fining people $500 for showing up in their cars and having a parking lot service. Each. They're taking down people's license plate. If you show up at a church today, and you'll be in prison for 14 days without trial in your own home. Not because you're a Christian, but because you have become a danger to society for showing up. They said, 
that your decision to go to church makes you a danger to society. And they say it's about everything, but the governor said that he had to close churches for public safety, but he could not close liquor stores and the abortion clinics because there would be a public outcry and it would cause panic. I can't go to church right now and give a sacrifice of praise with my brothers and sisters in Christ, but if I wanted to go into Louisville, I can sacrifice a baby on the altar of convenience because that's okay. Uh, a brother here was, had a video, a live video. He was at the abortion mill in Louisville yesterday, <clears throat> and there were so many people inside the waiting room that they didn't have enough chairs for them. They were sitting on the windowsills lined up inside waiting to abort their children. Looking it up, they said that dur- you know, there's a certain amount of abortions that are scheduled that people cancel. Life happens or, Lord willing, God happens, and they change their mind. But during this quarantine, the level of or the percentage of people canceling their abortions has dropped. Abortions have just they started happening. People don't have, they've removed their flock from the people, or the the flock from their leaders. They've removed the influence of God in the majority of these people's lives. And people feel free to go and do whatever they feel need to. They said that pornography, the percentage has just skyrocketed, the usage of pornography during this, people trapped in their home. The devil has been perfecting persecution. And even though someone else doing that may not be persecution to us, it hurts to know how many children are being murdered in Louisville and all around the world, all around our, our country. But the goal of that is once someone has done that, they have guilt. And that separates them from you. That gives them that, that anger towards you because you don't have that guilt. They feel like you are better than them and they've got to bring you down to size. Now you're a danger to society, like I said earlier. The devil has thousands of tactics and he's employing them. You can look through history and, and see different points where, because the devil doesn't know when the end time is. The Bible said he doesn't. So different points in history where it looks like Okay, this is the end. Different things that pop up in Revelations will happen here, 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 here. And every single time it gets a little bit more refined. And the devil will perfect how he persecutes people. If you look at, in Revelations, you'll see all of this persecution happening. And you're sitting there thinking, man... If I saw that happening, I get on my knees. I've read Revelations. I'd be like, "Man, that's this is happening." But it says that the people left over, the majority of them, they still hate God. I've got one last point here about persecution. One of the biggest tactics 
And the worst tactics that the devil uses to bring about persecution is persecution. Let me explain. Because there were different levels of persecution in Rome, there were different levels of, or not different levels, different stances. So some people thought it was okay to go and get your Libelous document and say, just do the sacrifice, get the certificate, you don't mean it, it's fine. Some people thought that it was okay if you just slid some money under the table and got your certificate and didn't do it. But then you could still work and, and live and not be persecuted because you had your document. In one of the sermons I, I was listening to, they, or the church history things I was listening to, they said that sometimes they would come to your house and they would say, okay, you've been accused of being a Christian. If you'll give us your scriptures, you're free to go. Because the scriptures were valuable. They weren't mass-produced like they are now. And some people, they would have some poems that Aunt Matilda wrote in the back in a language that the soldiers didn't understand, and they'd, here you go. And the soldiers didn't know any better. They'd just burn it, and you're free to go. Some people gave up their scriptures, which were considered the most heretic of them all. But they probably thought, well, the word of God is inside of me. What does it matter about a piece of paper? And some people would die or be taken or or imprisoned. So once the persecution was lifted and these people started returning from from the work camps and the prisons and, and wherever they had been sent to, Instead of there being this great unity, the body of Christ coming back together, finally, there's no persecution, let's worship together. They came back together and there were divisions among who was persecuted and who wasn't. There were divisions among who felt, basically it was in three sections. One section said, we have to go out and try to be persecuted, we need to seek persecution. Because it's, it's an honor and a joy to be persecuted for the body or for the name of Christ. Another section said, we'll live our lives, and if they show up, we're not going to run from persecution, but we're not going to go out there and, and try to get persecuted. And the other section said, well, we'll just hide from it. There's no sense in the body of Christ being wiped out, and we'll show up whenever the persecution is lifted. So that's where the segments were. The people who hid were looked down on by the people who were willing. The people who were willing were looked down on by the people who sought it. And they said that the most forgiving people were the people who came back from the camps. They just said, let's just, let's come back together. They had been through the punishment. They understood the sacrifice. And that they were done, they didn't want to be fighting with those people. They weren't trying, they wanted the body of Christ to come back together. But the church was ripped apart based on who was persecuted the worst. And when this is over and we get our religious freedom back to to assemble, Lord willing, we will. When this is over, we shouldn't be going back and, oh, well, that church met in person. So... You know, they should be ashamed of themselves. Or that person met in the par- they met in the parking lot and they wouldn't meet in person. They they must not have faith. 
we are not called to persecute our brothers and sisters. There are going to be times when I'm going to do stuff that if you knew about it, you'd be like, well, if he had a little bit more faith, he would have done that differently. And I'm sure there's going to be times if I looked at your lives, you would say the, I would say the same thing about you. We're all given a measure of faith that we exercise in the time that we have to exercise it. We are not called to judge someone else's faith, someone else's growth. If that's the case, then no one who's saved, no one who's not saved now, just they might as well not get saved because they didn't go to church either. Why are we taking it upon ourselves? And Christians do it as much as anybody. Why do we take it upon ourselves to persecute ourselves? And we have to pray for our leaders. As far as I can tell, our governor has no spiritual, good spiritual, no Christian values whatsoever. He claims he does, but you can see by his actions he doesn't. But that's the leader God has set up for me. As much as I disagree with him, as much as I, you know, I can pray that he doesn't come back next time, but I also have to pray for him. I have to pray, God, give him the wisdom and the heart. Because I'd much rather see someone that lost turn to God than see someone that lost die. If he dies, the devil wins. If he dies in his sin, the devil wins. Every leader out there right now, not just in America, but across the world, would do a whole lot better off and be a whole lot better off if they turn from their sin than if they're removed. That's the same tactic the devil uses only in reverse. The devil wants to break down the leaders, and I want God to take over the leaders. It doesn't have anything to do with the level of persecution or whether or not you pray for your leaders. That should just make us pray for them even more. I'll leave you with this, uh, this passage. Let's go to Philippians 1. We'll start in 27. Only let our conversation, as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether or, uh, let our conversations be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that they stand fast in the Spirit, with one mind striving for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of your perdition of, of perdition. But to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ not to believe on him, but also to suffer for his name's sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Yes, it may be a conflict, like I said before, to pray for those people. But just because it's a conflict doesn't mean that we don't do as we're commanded. I pray, and I'll continue to pray that, that God will give me the heart to not cause separation, to not be one of the people who, who stands up and says something against a leader, to not be one of the people who stands up against whether it's a good or bad.
because I can be used as a tool of persecution too if I do it wrong. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, I, I thank you for, for this sermon. I thank you for, for all those that hear it. I pray that, that it was your word, and I pray that any word that wasn't will be forgotten. I pray that you will be known. I pray that, that we will be strengthened. I pray that, that we will glorify your name, not just in what we say, but how we act and how we are presented to the world. I pray that we will, yes, separate ourselves from the world, but we will be bonded to each other. We will be bonded to you. That we will act as a true body of Christ, not just individual members running around. Just pray for your wisdom in these times. Pray for your patience be imparted on us, that we will have patience, not just with those around us, but not be impatient with you as well, that our heart will be to serve you and to wait on you, and we will pray for our leaders. In the name of Jesus, our leaders will fall down before you. They will humble themselves before you, that godly laws will be enacted, that These ungodly laws will be removed. That the people of this country will will turn from their immoral ways. We'll use this time to seek you and not as a time to escape from your word. Just thank you, Lord, for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.